Go through Romans, all ten of you. Because I just sowed a bunch of you out. I'm serious. I don't care where you are as long as you're in the building. And I'm happy to sow people out into classes. Uh, um, it's great. And I'm glad they're getting the Word of God. All right. If any of you now want to move up closer, I promise I won't come up and spit on you or anything. I won't shout or preach so bad. Have you ever been around a preacher that spit? I mean, really spit all the time. And, and he wonders why the first few rows end up empty after a while. I don't know why I asked you that question. I've, just, it, I've experienced it, and it was not good. All right. We're going to look at the book of Romans tonight, and we're in chapter 11. Speaking of Israel, we're looking at Israel tonight. <clears throat> And the wild olive tree. Let's stand together, all of us that are going through this now. And this is the final chapter on, the, on talking about actually focusing on Israel. And boy, we need to understand what's happening with Israel because Israel is the center of the world right now. Thank God we sent an offering off this week to that land. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for teaching us the Word of God building our faith, giving us wisdom, helping us to see the world through the eyes of God. Now illuminate us, speak to us in Jesus' mighty name. Will you breathe a prayer and just say, Lord, I receive with meekness the engrafted word that is able to save my soul. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, you know, that's a verse. And when I say it's able to save your soul, it doesn't save your soul like the blood talk about your mind and your will and your emotions the word of God will save your mind and your will and your emotions amen if you're ever upset just read the word well now let's look at the word we saw last time that salvation does not and cannot come through works which the Jewish people were convinced of they believe that through works by obeying the law or trying to obey the law they attained a righteousness but it cannot happen because you cannot fully, perfectly obey the Word. And if you break it in one point, you break the whole thing. So it's a lost cause, a study in futility. But here's what Paul is telling the Jewish people in chapters 9, 10, and 11. He's talking to his own people, his own brethren, his own kinsmen. He's telling them that salvation is obtained by believing in your heart that Christ was raised from the dead and confessing with your mouth that he is Lord. That's how you get saved. Because when you believe something in your heart, it's going to come out of your mouth. It's going to come out. So he says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from, your, from the dead and confess with your mouth he's Lord, then at that moment you are saved. At that moment, your salvation is sealed. At that moment, the Holy Ghost enters your heart, enters your life, and you become a child of God, and you go from death to life from lost to found, from headed to heaven instead of headed to hell. At that moment, that's how we're saved. Isn't that easy? That's too easy. Sometimes we wish it was something more complicated, but it's not. You know why? So that the simplest person can do it. Now, well, that's not working all of a sudden. There we go, and I went way ahead. All right, there we go. Now, we also saw, once again, Paul's deep and heavy burden for his own people, the Jew. Chapter 11 now begins with this crucial question. He says, I ask then, did God reject his people, the Jewish people? 
Did he reject them? Because they rejected him, has he rejected them? Well, then before we even have the chance to answer, Paul does it for us. He says, what everybody? Say it with me. By no means. Has he rejected the Jew? By no means. Then Paul says, I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Now pointing to himself, a Jew, Paul elaborates on four important things in this chapter 11. He says first that he talks about the remnant of Israel. We're going to look at that, the remnant. And then the evangelization of the Gentiles, and that be you and me. Third thing, he's going to talk about Israel's jealousy because of the success of the Gentile mission. They received Christ, and the Jews didn't. And then the eventual turning of Israel to Jesus Christ. It's going to happen one day. They're going to turn in mass to their Messiah. Now, Paul points out that the rejection of Israel was partial, not total. It was partial. There was a remnant of Jewish believers, and Paul was part of that remnant. Although Israel had indeed been stubborn and obstinate, she had not been completely repudiated as a nation. Okay? So Israel has not been rejected. Now next, Paul divides Jews into two classes, and this is where we're going to go. Really important. First class, a believing minority. And then he talks about the second class, a blinded or a hardened majority. All right? Blinded or believing. Those two classes of Jews exist, always have, and they will until God moves on the nation as a whole. Now, he wants his brethren to see that God's dealings with the Jews have been fair and they have been perfectly consistent. How many of you have realized in your walk with God, just in looking back over your own life, that even when you did not understand him, you can look back now and see he was righteous in what he did in your life. He was fair. It was good. As Abraham asked, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the answer is yes, he always does. Okay? Paul says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? Now he's going to draw a parallel with the story of the prophet Elijah, one of my favorite Old Testament characters. How Elijah appealed to God against Israel. Here's what Elijah said. He said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altar and I'm the only one left. And they're trying to kill me. Anybody ever feel that way? I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. That's what depression will do for you. All right? And what was God's answer to him? Look what God said to him. No, Elijah, you're wrong. You're not the only one left. I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. This shows you how depression will skew reality for you. If you get depressed, you start thinking, well, I'm the only one fighting this battle. I'm the only one that cares. I'm the only one going through this. I'm the only one that feels this way. And the devil's trying to kill me. And what does God say? No, 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 you're wrong. Depression is skewing reality for you. Because there's a lot of people going through what you do. There's a lot of people experiencing what you are. You're not going through it alone. Now look at Elijah's complaint against Israel. It came out of his darkest hour of personal depression and in the midst of fearful national apostasy. 
The mighty victory on Carmel. You remember that victory on Carmel when Elijah called fire down out of heaven? And it, and it burned up and devoured the sacrifice of wood and water and, and dried up the water in the trenches. And everybody there fell down on their face and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And then Elijah single-handedly took the prophets of Baal down into the valley and, and ministered to them capital punishment because they had killed children and they deserved to die. They had killed children. And now, he had this incredible victory, but here's what happened. Even though it dealt a, dev a devastating blow to Jezebel's power structure, her Baal prophets, and to the satanic cult of Baal, but that victory was incomplete. And Elijah realized this after the fact. The wily Jezebel had not sent all of her prophets to the Carmel duel but had kept in reserve 400 false prophets of Baal in the groves. So with these 400, she was going to counter his victory and come back. And when he realized this, his iron nerve melted. He said, man, I call fire out of heaven. I have this incredible victory, but now this wicked woman has still got 400 prophets of Baal, and she's just going to make a comeback. So what was it all for? That's when he blurted out. He, he ran into the wilderness, got under a juniper tree, and he literally asked God to kill him. He was suicidal, but he wouldn't do it himself. So he said, God, kill me. Come on, God, kill me. And God, of course, gave him some angel food cake, the original angel food cake, and made him go to sleep, got him some rest. And then he ran way far in the wilderness, found a cave, went into the cave, and God began to deal with him. Here's what he was saying to God. All of your people have sold out to Baal or been martyred, and I'm the last man standing. Do you ever feel this way, that all of God's people in our day have sold out to the world? Have you ever felt that way? I've talked to leaders that feel that way sometimes. It's never true, but you can feel that way. I'm the last man standing. I'm the last woman of faith, and there you go. But God replied with the actual truth of the situation. God said, I've reserved for myself 7,000. It's you plus 7,000 who have not given themselves over to Baal. And I can tell you today, folks, God's got a remnant that have not given themselves to the culture, not given themselves to the devil, not given themselves to insanity. But they're staying true to God because God always has a remnant. Now, as it had been in Elijah's day, so it was in Paul's day, and it ever has been. Mark it down. This is always true. God never leaves himself without a remnant. You are never totally alone. There have been times in the history of the church, as it was with Israel, when the lamp of testimony has burned dim, but it's never burned totally out. Amen. So say with me, I'm not alone. Say with me, put your violin up. There's a lot of us. And we're going to win. Give the Lord a hand of praise. <laughs> now, Paul goes on. So too, at the present time, now watch what he's saying to the Jewish people. He's saying, there is a remnant chosen by grace. 
And if by grace, then it's no longer by what? No longer by works. He said if it were of works, grace would no longer be grace. We wouldn't need grace if we could do it by works. So Paul's point is this. God's remnant has always been comprised of those who have accepted the principles of salvation by faith through grace. In other words, the remnant always exists as a remnant, having done it, having gotten saved and achieved righteousness God's way. On His terms, not on their own. Okay? So God's remnant has always come to Him on His terms, not their own. And next Paul is going to deal with now the blinded majority. So keep in mind now, there is the believing minority. Right now, always has been. But now you've got a blinded majority. And this will go to show you, the majority is not always right. Because the majority here are blind. And you know what, can I tell you? Right now in our culture, the majority is not right. It's usually a minority that's got it right and a majority that's got it wrong. Majority's had it wrong many times throughout history. Now watch this. <clears throat> the picture that Paul gives of the nation of Israel as a whole is sad. He speaks first of what we might call the search. The search that they had undertaken. The, un the unavailing search of the nation of Israel. What was that search? Look what he says. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, and what was it? Righteousness. What they sought so earnestly, what does it say? They did not obtain. But the elect did. The others were, Paul says, hardened, blinded. The worst blindness of all is spiritual blindness. It's the worst of all. The word blinded means calloused. It's used in the Gospels to describe Pharisees who were angered at the Lord Jesus for healing a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He heals somebody and they attacked him because he did it on the Sabbath day. They had a calloused heart. Now, it's used later by Paul to describe unconverted Gentiles. Now, what we're about to read, our culture, our country is full of people like this right now. And you used to be this way and so did I. Look what he says, who walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of what, everybody? The blindness of their heart. Okay? So your heart can be blind. It's with the heart that we believe. So it's with the heart that we don't believe. It's with the heart that we can, by faith, see God. But it's with the heart that is blinded that we can't see spiritual truth at all. So he says the Gentile world walks around this way, blind in their heart. Now in Paul's day, the passion of the Greek was for knowledge. They loved knowledge. They, you know, hence Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Thucydides, all the Greek philosophers, all the Greek thinkers. They loved uh, 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 knowledge but by their knowledge, they never found God. And the passion of the Romans was for power. You don't find the Romans worried about philosophizing much. You do see them worried about conquering. They wanted power. The Greeks wanted knowledge. But the passion of the Jew was for righteousness. As a nation, their drive 
was to achieve righteousness with God. But they missed their national goal by missing Christ. That's why Jesus cried over them. He said, you want righteousness. You want to be right with me. You want to please me. You want to make it to heaven. You want to stand as a righteous person before me. But, it, but here I am standing in front of you and you've rejected me. If I could, I would gather you to myself like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have me. He came to his own, the Jew, and his own rejected him. Except for the remnant. They missed their goal by missing Christ and became hardened. Except for the remnant, that believing minority. Now next Paul speaks of the stupor of the nation. He says, as it is written, God gave them, who gave it to them? God gave them, let God be true and every man a liar. Look at what the Bible says God did. God gave them a spirit of what? Stupor. Eyes so that they could not see. And ears so that they could not hear. To this very day. Well, why would God do that? I thought God wanted us to believe. Well, Here's why it happened. The nation became so resistant to God's truth that they became the subject of God's judicial hardening. Now, church, listen carefully to me. If you resist God for too long, there is a place, and I don't know where it is, but God knows. If you say no, you resist him, you push him away, you you refuse to answer his call, you resist him over and over again, there comes a time when God says, okay, And I've talked to you about this. Romans 1 talked about this. He says, go your own way. Go ahead. See, when you give God up, there comes a place, a dangerous place, where God gives you up. Say, Pastor, that's heavy. Go ahead and tell me. I know it is. But I'm reading the Bible to you right here. Isn't this what it just said? God gave them a spirit of stupor. Why? because they had come under his judicial hardening. Paul had already discussed the judicial hardening of Pharaoh. And Isaiah speaks very solemnly of a similar doom for Israel. Look what he said. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. See, God does this with whole nations. When a nation rejects God and rejects God and rejects God, he will finally say, okay, go your own way and reap the consequences. And you do. And it's a scary moment. That's why it says, today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Isn't that what it says? Now, in the last days, wrote Paul to the Thessalonians. He said the same thing is going to happen in the last days. God will deal with apostate Christendom in the same way. Now, what is apostate Christendom? Before I show you this next slide, it is this. When those who claim to be Christian completely walk away from the Word of God, they do not live the life that Jesus said. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. When you look at their life, there's nothing Christian about it. They are apostate. They have walked away from the truth. And God said, in the last days, there is going to be an apostate church. Now let me ask you a million-dollar question. Is that church around today? 
Oh, yeah. There is an apostate church in our day right now. Now, look what it says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12 about this church in the last days. He says, for this reason, God will send. Who will send? And what will he send? Preach it to me. Strong delusion. Wow. God will do that. That they should believe what? A lie. Now, if I'd written that, I would have said, and for this reason, Satan will send them strong delusion. That they will believe a lie. It says, no, when you resist God and you walk away from the truth and you really don't walk with him in truth as you say you do, and you throw his Bible out, and you throw knowledge of him out, and you go your own way, and you live your own way, and you don't live unto God, but you live in the flesh and live to yourself. There comes a place where God says to that apostate church, be deluded. I'm going to send you a strong delusion. You're going to believe the lie. Now the lie spoken of right there is Antichrist. They should believe the lie, not a lie, the lie of Antichrist, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. See what they didn't do? They didn't believe the truth. So they were fake and phony. They were not real. But they had pleasure in what, everyone? So they were fake. They were phony. They were not the real thing. You remember that old commercial? Where's the beef? Remember that old lady? What was it, Burger King? I forget. And she, she's, she's, and it, it was very famous. Where's the beef? Sometimes I'll look at the church that's out there and I want to say, where's the real thing? Okay? And you know what? God says that. God looks at the church and says, where's the beef? Where's the real thing? And that's why we need to be very, very honest and sincere in our faith, don't we? All right, now, as leprosy renders the flesh insensitive, when a, when a leper's fingers, for instance, begin to uh, be covered with that leprosy and begin to fall off, uh, they can't feel pain. They can't feel anything. And as, the, as leprosy renders the flesh insensitive, the soul of the Jewish nation has been rendered insensitive to Christ. You can go over there. I've been there. And you can talk to many Jewish people, and I love the Jewish people. But when you talk to them about Jesus, there is a veil. They just don't get it. And that veil's coming off one day. We're going to see that in a minute. Now next, Paul speaks of the snare of the nation. David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Well, what table is he talking about? Here's what it is. In the holy place of the tabernacle of Israel, in the tabernacle, the outer court, the inner court, the holy of holies, in the tabernacle, there was a table. And Israel's high and holy privilege was to eat with Jehovah at his table. A privilege not reserved for the priests alone, but in their peace offerings for the people as well. So there was a table, and they ate at this table in the tabernacle. But watch this. In their feast days also, Israel sat at a table, so to speak, with Jehovah. This being the highest, happiest, and holiest of all national privileges. But then it became a snare to the nation. How did it become a snare? In its unbelief. Because they became way more occupied with the outer ceremonial than with the spiritual reality. They got hooked on ritual and they disconnected from the God 
who gave them the table. And how easy is that for us to do? You get it all in the ritual of going to church, uh, going through the motions, and you can get so busy with the work of the Lord, you disconnect from the Lord of the work. You can get so caught up in ritual that you forget why you're doing it, why you're even here. So this happened to them, and it became a snare. This is how they became religious instead of being a people in relationship with God. They became more occupied with the outer appearance than with the inner reality. Now next, Paul speaks of the servitude of the nation. May their eyes be darkened, he says in verse 10, chapter 11. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Do you all hear this, everybody? Would you want that spoken over you? You see why Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and he wept? Because look what he says here. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. The bowing of the back, the loosening of the loins, is a vivid picture of servitude and fear. From generation to generation, the Jew, just look at the history of the Jew, they have fled from land to land, ever pursued by the vicious curse of anti-Semitism. Read the history of the Jewish nation after 70 AD. Follow them all the way through the history of the centuries, and you'll find the Jew always persecuted, never having anywhere to, to lay their head. Anti-Semitism following them everywhere they go. What they experience? The bowing of the back. What do they experience? That bowing of the back, the loosening of the loins. Persecuted everywhere they went. I'm reading a book right now called uh, Bonhoeffer. And it's about World War II. And here's the Jewish people as this madman, this demon-possessed lunatic named Hitler comes to power. And what does he want to do? He has it in for one race, and it's the Jew. And he orchestrates the entire nation to persecute them, murder them, slaughter them, drive them out, take away their liberty, take away their life, take away their family, take away everything. Sent them to the gas chambers and the ovens. And you look at that and you remember back here where Paul said in verse 10, May their eyes be darkened so they can't see and their backs be bent forever. See, there was a high price to pay for rejecting Jesus. Amen? See, I've learned when God comes knocking, you need to open the door. When he knocks, open the door. And say, come right in, do what you want. It's so good to have you in my living room. The national rejection of Christ has brought in its train for the Jew untold miseries from age to age. It's just a fact. Hitler's death camps have been but one more high tide mark in the sorrows of the wandering Jew. From what is written on the prophetic page of Scripture, we know that those horrors will not be the last. The Holocaust won't be the last. We're still ahead of the nation of Israel, knocking on their door right now are the horrors of the Great Tribulation. It's just about there. Zechariah the prophet, the day will come when Israel will become a sore spot for the whole world. Ezekiel, you will be surrounded by the nations of the world. Every nation of the world will consider you a burden and a hassle and a problem. And the day will come when every nation surrounding you will attack you and the great deceiver, Antichrist, will lead them in a peace treaty sometime in the near future. 
and they will sign a contract with hell. Now, but that's not the end of their story. Everybody say amen. That's not the end of their story. I want you to look what Zechariah the prophet wrote, that after that final agony of the great tribulation, here's what's going to happen. God will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And what will they do? Read it with me. And they shall upon me whom they have pierced. Who could that be talking about? Now this is Zechariah, Old Testament. But God is speaking right through him to the nation of Israel and saying, there is going to be somebody pierced, crucified for you. And you're not going to know them. You're not going to receive them. But the day will come when there is an awakening among the Jewish people. And you will look on me. Now this is God talking. So, so he's saying me, Jesus having been God. You will look on me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And they shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for the firstborn. And in that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad Rimmon and the valley of Megiddo, the valley of Armageddon. And the land shall mourn every family apart. And remember what it says in Revelations 1. Uh, Behold, he comes with clouds and every eye will see him and those who pierced him. So the day is going to come when there is a national, a national awakening among the Jewish people. And they will receive Messiah, Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, what a great, great day that's going to be. So there will be a day when the Jews turn in mass to Messiah. And in the meantime, God is dealing with the Jews disapprovingly. Look what Paul says, quote, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. See, you got saved because God wants to make them jealous. Isn't that what it just said? Yeah. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure to receive Messiah is riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Man. Paul had seen this principle work in city after city of the Roman Empire where invariably, when he went in there and preached Jesus, uh, the turning to the Gentiles or turning of the Gentiles to Jesus was followed by deep resentment and jealousy on the part of the Jewish community. They hounded Paul, persecuted him, imprisoned him, beat him, threatened him, stalked him. Why? They were furious that the Gentiles were receiving Christ, even though they didn't want him. They were jealous. Paul goes on to discuss that if through their stubbornness, their jealousy, and their rebellion, the Gentiles have fallen heir to such blessings... What riches are in store for the world when Israel is restored to its rightful position? Let me, I'll tell you what it's going to be. The millennial reign of Christ. When the lion will lay down with the lamb. See, if all these Gentile people, billions through the, the centuries have been saved because God was rejected by the Jews, if then God turned to us and we all got saved, and was that not glorious... What's going to happen when the Jew finally turns to their rightful position? 
God has not lost sight of his ultimate goal. And what was his ultimate goal? The fulfillment of his promises that he made to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. Through you, all the peoples of the world are going to be blessed. And we're included in that promise right there. Paul not only explains what God is doing, but he even exploits what God is doing. Look what he says, quote, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. <clears throat> if by any means I may provoke to jealousy. He, look, he said, I'm trying to make them jealous. I'm trying to make my kinsmen jealous. Na 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 na. I've got peace like a river, joy like a fountain. I've got righteousness by faith. Na 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 na. To the Jewish people, I wish you would get jealous enough to get saved. Look what he says if by any means I may provoke, provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the Gentile world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Well, what does that mean? Paul hoped that by throwing himself into his great life's work of Gentile world evangelism, here's what he was hoping, that some of his Jewish brethren would be saved, even if jealousy were the motive. God doesn't care how you come to him or why, as long as you do. Some are saved by love, some are saved by fear, some are saved by jealousy. It happened to me when I walked into that Bible study when I was 18 years old and I saw all those long-haired, bell-bottom, wearing t-shirt, wearing hippies with their hands raised, with tears flowing out of their eyes, fully in love with Jesus Christ. It pricked my heart and I said, Lord, if I could have that, I'll give up anything. And God did say to me, say that one more time to me, Jeff. I said, if I could have that, I'd give up anything. I experienced a twinge of jealousy. I wanted what they had. And boy, that night, I got it. And I've been getting it ever since. And it only gets worse the older I get. Amen. But now, it was jealousy. And God doesn't care why you come as long as you do. Okay, Paul's reference to the root. Now watch this. His reference to the root and the branches introduces what follows. Abraham is the root since he was the depository of the promises. The tree is the race of Abraham, the Jew. The natural branches are the individual Jews. Those who first partook of the tree's root and fatness. So the root, Abraham, the branches are the Jews, and the tree is the race of Abraham. Now watch, the engrafted branches are you and me. The Gentiles placed upon the root. We weren't placed on the trunk or on the branches, but on the root. All right? The Gentile does not become a Jew, nor does he become of Israel. But the Gentile enters directly into the blessing promised by God to the Gentiles through Abraham. And what was that promise? 
Through you, all the nations of the world, Abraham, are going to be what, everybody? Blessed. Are you blessed tonight? Say with me, I am blessed with Abraham. Give the Lord a hand of praise. We are. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, you got grafted in. And you are wild, baby. Because the Bible says you are a wild branch, wild thing. While God is acting disapprovingly with Israel, but with the restoration of Israel in mind, he's also acting with the present redemption of the Gentiles in mind. Okay? Look what he says, quote, And if some of the branches were broken off, it's talking about some of the Jewish people broke off because they didn't believe. And you, being a what? Wild olive tree were grafted in among them. And with them, you became a partaker of what? And the root is Abraham. And the fatness of the olive tree, what's the fatness? The blessing. You're grafted in. You're grafted right into Abraham and the blessing. And so that spiritually, spiritually, you're fat with blessing. Amen? Not lean, not mean, fat. And that's a fatness you want. Now watch this. He says, in light of this, that you got grafted in, you being wild, don't boast against the branches. Don't you ever look at a Jew and say, nana, 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 I'm saved and you're not, and, and praise God I'm holier than you, and have a great time in hell. No. He said, don't boast against the branches. If you do boast, remember, you do not support the root, but the root is supporting you. Ooh, that's a powerful passage. The root is supporting you. You're not supporting the root. In other words, by grace, God grafted you in. When the Jews rejected Jesus, he moved to you and I, the Gentile, and he grafted us into the root. And the fatness of the root, the blessing of the root, the promises of the root. He says, don't ever go around bragging about it because you were wild. And you stand where you stand by grace. And that's it. Now, you will say then, quote, well, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. They didn't accept Christ. And you stand by faith. Don't be haughty about it, but fear. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I was a wild olive tree. I was headed straight to hell. I was blind. My heart was blind. But Lord, when the Jew rejected you, you turned to me, a wild olive tree, and you grafted me in being a wild olive tree and now I'm partaking of Abraham and the blessings that were intended for the Jew. I don't brag about it or walk haughtily about it but I walk in fear because I stand by faith. For if God did not spare the natural branches, that is the Jews to whom the promises came, He's not going to spare you either, dude. That's why America need never say, well, something special about us. Because listen, God chastened and judged his own olive branch, his own nation of Israel. 
He's judged them over and over again. So far be it from America to think that we're something special with God. He'll judge us too. He may not spare you either. That's what he says. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fell, there is severity. But towards you, the Gentiles right now, goodness. If, what's the if? If you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Since Gentiles now have all the spiritual privileges, once proudly owned by the Jews, they better beware of religious pride. I'll tell you, I'm so thankful to God that he saved me and pulled me out of the darkness I was in. Horrible, terrible darkness. Aren't you? Aren't you so thankful? There you were, whatever, doing whatever, drugs, immorality, drinking, whatever it was, self-righteousness, but the light of God shined on you. And you said, I believe, and he grafted you in to Abraham. They were a wild olive tree, the Gentiles, you and me, grafted into the root of the blessed olive tree. This should not make us proud and boastful, but humble. Now next, Paul shows that God has every intention of ultimately restoring Israel to all her former privileges. Quote, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Okay? He says in verse 24, for, which of, uh, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the Jewish people, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? They will. Boy, here you were, a wild, gnarly olive tree. And God, you repented. He took you off that wild olive tree and grafted you in to the real olive tree. You can't go back. You've been grafted in. If, says Paul, the grafting in, contrary to nature, of the Gentiles has been so fruitful, what will it be when Israel, the natural branches, come back into their own? He says, quote, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God has used the temporary blindness of Israel to bring you and me in. And so all Israel, what did he say there? All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now here Paul boldly announces that all of Israel will be saved. Does he mean that every single Jew will be saved? No. This is a mystery. And it's a special insight that he's received from God by revelation. When the full number of Gentiles have come to Christ, it will happen. This does not mean that all Jews, every single solitary one, will be saved. It's likely referring to the full number, similar to the full number of Gentiles. God has not forsaken the Jew. All things are being orchestrated by his great sovereignty. Now watch. The day is going to come when the last Gentile is saved. Not another Gentile is going to repent. Then God will return back to the Jew. 
and there was going to be a revival among the Jewish people. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Now look what he says in verse 29. I love this passage. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. If you're called of God and you are, you might as well just give in because you can't fight God. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now you have obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Now Paul ends this stunning section with a doxology of praise. And I want you to stand with me and let's read it together. Now this is a terrible thing to say, but I'm speaking from the Word of God here. How many of you can say, well, I'm thankful that at least that they rejected Christ, at least that then I had a chance. But I'm also rejoicing that the whole nation is going to have a revival. The whole nation of the Jewish people. Let's read it together. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Read it. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor, or who has first given to Him, and it shall be repaid to Him. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Give him a hand of praise. Now next time, living sacrifices, you and me. Father, thank you for the grace of God that we, the wild olive tree, have been grafted into the root of the olive tree of blessing, the real olive tree. Abraham and the promises and the blessings. Thank you, Lord God, that when we were wild and blind, you saved us by grace through faith. And now, Lord, we do ask again for the nation of Israel to be saved. We send our financial offering this week to those that we're supporting will win some of the original Jewish people, the real branches, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing before we go. One stanza. Lift it up, everybody. Sing it now. Jesus.